love our tradition of noticing when people become followers of Christ around here by the roses on the piano or nailing a ribbon to the cross. And this morning, I want to tell you the story of how I became a follower of Christ. Um, I was pretty young. I was born into a family that attended church and believed in God. And so I attended a private Christian kindergarten. And my kindergarten teacher told stories about heaven and that there would be streets of gold that there would be no pain and no tears. And I thought, that's where I want to be. And I'll confess, I didn't know much about letting go of my selfish ways or taking up my cross, but I understood that somebody I loved and cared about had said that if I believed that Jesus was the Son of God and that he would forgive me for my sins, I could go and live forever in heaven. And so I asked a person who I thought would know. She was a friend of mine who was probably about seven years old. And I said, do you know how I asked Jesus into my heart? And she said, yes, you repeat after me. (laughs) Because as you know, in the evangelical tradition, that is how you come to know Jesus. You repeat after somebody. And that seven-year-old friend of mine led me in a very theologically sound sinner's prayer. Of confessing that I was a sinner and that I needed forgiveness of confessing that I believed that Jesus Christ was the one and only Son of God and that by his death and resurrection, he had gained authority to give me eternal life and to welcome me into his family as his child. And I will say this. There came a time in the ensuing years that I began to understand what lordship meant and what submitting my life to Jesus' will meant and what it meant to let go of my selfish ways and take up my cross and follow him. But at that moment, with two little girls sitting in a bedroom... I knew that I was God's child and forever would be. And from that place, because of the gift of my upbringing, I was in church a lot. Actually, every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, and every Wednesday night. And when you go to church that much, you hear a lot of Bible stories. And this morning, as we look at Samuel, we actually get to look at one of the classics. I drew the lot for David and Goliath today. And because of my upbringing in the church, I've heard David and Goliath quite a few times, as I'm sure have many of you. And it reminded me of the flannel graph. Do you remember flannel graph? (laughs) Not all of you might know what that is, but it's when they had this board that had flannel on it, and then they had pictures, and you could stick the flannel picture to the flannel board, and it would stay. And technology has come a long way since then in the way that we educate and train up children. Uh, But I want to give us today the flannel graph view, kind of the the overall picture of David and Goliath. And then we're going to take some time and look at how does that apply to us? Matter of fact, I'm going to tell you the end of the sermon first today. The end of the sermon is that each of us have our Goliath moments. And how will we come to those places prepared to respond with courage when it is asked of us? So there's the end. If you'd like to leave, it's okay. But if you'd like to stay and hear the story, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 16 and 17, which in your Bible is... Uh, Pew Bible is page 460. You are welcome to follow along. I will warn you that I'm not reading verse by verse, although I will stop and highlight certain verses, but we're just going to tell the story together today. You might remember that Samuel, who we're reading about, was a prophet in the nation of Israel, that the nation had asked for a king, the king was Saul, that Saul was um, anointed as king, he stood a head taller than the other men, he was strong, he was handsome, the nation was pleased to follow him as a king. And in the beginning, Saul did a good job of listening to Samuel and obeying God. Matter of fact, God gave them a great victory that we heard about a few weeks ago. But we've also heard that Saul then 
made a lot of poor choices. As a matter of fact, his choices often fell on the wrong side of right. And Brian did a great job last week of showing us that a lot of the reason why Saul's choices were not following God was because he couldn't get past his pragmatic worldview, his realistic view that if it, if it didn't make sense, he couldn't follow God where he couldn't see how it was going to work out. And because of that, God rejected Saul as his king. And that's where we enter the story here in verse 16, chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. Saul is afraid, excuse me, Samuel is afraid of what Saul's going to think. God says, go anyway, and Samuel does. That's a mark of someone who's a follower of Christ, when we go even when we're afraid. And when he got there, he called the town elders and Jesse and Jesse's sons, and they prepared a sacrifice, and they were having a time together where God was going to show who he was going to anoint as the future king of Israel. And we pick it up in verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab, that was Jesse's oldest son, and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed Now, I want you to just picture for a minute that you've been asked to go into a room full of people and identify which one is the king. And there's no crowns, no jewels, no robes, just by looking at the person who has the kingly stature. The picture's going to be different for all of us. Quite honestly, I think it probably looks a lot like Jeff Roth. Just saying. (laughs) And for those of you who don't know, that's my husband. It's okay. It's fair for me to think that. We have this view of what an outward appearance means, what an outward appearance looks like, and what certain roles are going to look like outwardly. But in verse 7, we hear this, the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And this verse is really the crux of where we're coming from and where we're going this morning is the fact that the things that you and I can see externally are not the things that God calls us to make our decisions on. That God is looking at something that's deeper than the surface and that we're called to look with him at the heart of what's happening in our own lives and in the lives of people around us. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So God says no to Eliab, and he proceeds to say no to the next six sons that are paraded before him. Jesse has brought out seven of his sons, and the Lord has not chosen any of them. So Samuel says, are these all the sons you have? Jesse says, they're still the youngest, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. David wasn't even deemed worthy to be at the dinner table. They didn't even invite him. Why? Well, he was the youngest in a culture where age and hierarchy were everything, and the oldest brother received the inheritance and the honor. Because he was the youngest, he had been given the job that nobody wanted, which was being out in the field with the sheep and the goats. It was a very low-stature job in those days. And when Jesse heard that the prophet wanted to see his sons, he wanted to bring in all seven of his oldest, but the youngest, he didn't even really care if he saw And yet Samuel says, send for him at once. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. And as you know, when David arrived, the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. What did God see in David's heart that he didn't see in sons number one through seven? So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had bought and anointed David with oil. 
And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. I want us to remember this as we look at what's going to happen in this story with Goliath. And as we even go through the next weeks and months finishing out this series and look at the life of David, that we need to look at it through the filter of from the moment he was anointed to be the future king, called by God to step up in defense and protect of the nation, he was given the power from the spirit of the living God and that everything that happens in his life must be viewed through the filter of the fact that he is acting and living by the power of God that has been upon him. We're going to jump ahead to 17. Dun, dun, dun. Here comes Goliath. And the flannel graphs gets really exciting because Goliath is big. It says he was about nine feet tall. And if we look at the early parts of chapter 17, we find a description of Goliath that would make sense to the people of that day and age. It talks about how tall he is and what his helmet was made out of and how heavy his coat of mail was and how thick his spear and how long his javelin. Bottom line, this guy was scary. This guy was big, he was powerful, he was trained for war, and he was fearsome. He's a Philistine, which is a country that was at war with Israel. The Philistine army had marched out because they wanted to conquer some of Israel's land. Israel had marched out because they wanted to protect their land. And the two armies were at an impasse. As I understand it, one army was up on the hillside of a valley and the other army was on the other hillside. And for either one to advance, they'd have to go through the valley and climb the hill and be unprotected. So neither army is moving. They're at an impasse. And into this impasse, the Philistines send Goliath. And he goes down into the valley and he says this, why are you all coming out to fight? I am the Philistine champion, but you are only servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. That's a bold statement. I defy the armies of Israel today. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Saul, the anointed king, a head taller than everybody else in the army. And every warrior that he had, terrified of the champion who stood roaring at them in the valley. And rightfully so. For one of them to go hand-to-hand combat with that monstrosity was not a possibility. Not one of them could succeed on their own. And all they could see was Goliath. And they were paralyzed with fear. Entering the scene comes David. David has three of his older brothers in the war. And so Jesse, David is still at home taking care of the sheep. Jesse sends him to the battle because he wants to get a report of what's going on. There's no TVs or CNN news or ways for Jesse to figure out what's happening. And he wants to know what the status of things is. He has sons in the war and he sends his youngest. And he sends him with some grain and loaves of bread and says 10 cuts of cheese to give to the captain. David is just bringing a picnic to him. He's not going out to start fighting with him. He's supposed to go and find out what's going on and come back and tell his dad what's going on. And he arrives just in the morning as the Israelite army is leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. And friends, for 40 days, Goliath has been coming out every morning and every evening, I believe it says. Yep, every morning and every evening. And he's shouting his threats at them and making his challenge. And for 40 days, 
The army has been paralyzed with fear. And this morning, just as the previous 40, they run to the battlefield and there's Goliath saying, send me one man. If I kill him, we'll be your, you'll be our slaves. And if he kills me, we'll be your slaves. And as soon as they heard it, they began to run away in fright. As they run away, they're saying to David, he's new. Hey, have you heard him? Did you see him? Did you see how big he was? Did you see how long his spear was? Have you heard what the king's going to do? The king says he'll give his daughter in marriage to the man who will fight him. The king says he'll even exempt that person's family from taxes for their whole life if somebody will fight Goliath. Sounds pretty good to you and me, and it sounded pretty good to David. So he started asking around, what's the man going to get who kills this Philistine? And the people start answering. And in that moment, he asks a question that nobody else has asked. You find it in the second part of verse 26. Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And we begin to get a glimpse of what is in David's heart that wasn't in the heart of the first seven brothers. Because you see, brothers one, two, and three are part of the army that's paralyzed with fear. And the army is part of a nation that knows that they're God's chosen people and that God has covenanted with them to protect them and give them this land. And yet none of those valiant warriors were able to take that knowledge from their mind and put it into action as related to this giant who was defying their army. And not only did David recognize that who God is, he recognized that when that giant defied the army of Israel, he was defying the army of the living God because this nation belongs to God. And he was jealous for the honor and the righteousness of God's name. It was a righteous anger based on God being honored. We find someone else who's angry moving down to 28. When David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. But he wasn't angry with righteous anger. I believe his anger rose up out of self-defense. Remember, he hasn't gone out to fight Goliath. He didn't remember God's promises. He's frozen with fear. And here's his little twerp brother coming and nosing around and asking questions and acting like maybe he might be able to do something about Goliath. Come on. He's angry, and he's putting David down and trying to put him in his place. What are you doing around here anyway? What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? What's happening here? He wants everyone within hearing distance to know that this kid is a shepherd. That's all he is. It's kind of like, what's that smell? Oh, yeah, my kid brother David came to bring the cheese. He's trying to put David in his place and get him to scamper home. And he says, I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. (laughs) You see, David has confidence in God and his brother thinks it's pride and deceit. His brother thinks that David is trying to lift up himself because that's where his heart is grounded. And what's in his heart. You see, by what he's saying, he's exposing what's in his heart. I think it's an important truth for us to pause on. That if we want to know what's in someone's heart, if we want to know what's in our heart, listen to the words that are coming out of our mouths. Matter of fact, Jesus says in Luke 6, 45... 
that what you say flows from what is in your heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. And Eliab, by what he is saying, is exposing why he was not the heart that God chose to be the future king of Israel. And David goes on to say some things that show us more why he is the heart that God chose. Pick it up with me in verse 32. David has been brought to Saul, and he says, don't worry about this Philistine, I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. Saul is revealing that realistic nature that Brian talked about last week. You are a boy. That's obvious. He is a man of war. That's obvious. Therefore, you cannot fight him and win. That's obvious. And Saul is right. He's completely right. David cannot possibly fight Goliath and win. And yet, did you know that it's possible for us to be right and wrong at the same time? Because he's 100% wrong. Because he's forgotten the most important thing. But David did not. He persisted and said, I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. And when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I, I don't remember seeing that part on the flannel graph. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. David isn't arguing the argument of whether or not he has what it takes to fight Goliath. He's arguing the argument that says God's honor is at stake, and he will rescue me just like he has rescued me in the past. Saul gives his permission for David to go, but he says, wear my armor. If you're going to fight this guy, go with the best technology, go with the best weaponry, go and fight him with the way that I would fight him. And David tries it on, but then he says, I can't go in these. I'm not used to them. So he took them off and he picked up five smooth stones from a stream, put them into his shepherd's bag, and then armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. He knew that he wasn't used to the armor. He hadn't held a sword. He didn't know how to fight with a sword. That the fact that he was called to this battle did not mean that he needed to do it the way everybody else did it or the conventional way of being done. He knew what his skill set was. He knew what he was used to. And so he grabbed what he had. He had a sling and he got some stones and he headed across the valley to do what God had called him to do. And I think you and I would be wise to pay attention to this because in our lives, we have certain experiences and skill sets and spiritual gifts that God has given us. Even our personality, the way that we're wired, our created being is who we have to bring into the world. And how often are we trying to do life and face the battles in the world, even our Goliath moments, the way that we think other people are supposed to face them? or with the weapons that we've seen other people use, or the personality or the skill set, or trying to do it the way we've seen people do before. When God is saying, if I call you to this battle, I have called you to this life that you're living, you are called to live it with how I created you to be. And the other fascinating piece of this is that, as it turns out, David is a pretty good shot with his sling. Matter of fact, if you look up online about slingers, 
you can find all sorts of information about how accurate and how deadly a slinger can be. David may have practiced slinging out in the wilderness when he was guarding the sheep. He may have known that he was a good shot, but that is not how he defended his position to King Saul. He did not say to Saul, no, no, I can fight Goliath because I am a really good slinger. I mean, I have been out in the wilderness and my trajectory is great. My aim is great. And I know that I can hit the giant from 50 yards out before I'm even within reach of his javelin. Like, I got this. I'm a good slinger. That's not what he said. He said, the Lord who rescued me from the lion and who rescued me from the bear will rescue me from Goliath. And this is an incredible tension and a mystery that you and I need to grasp. When we are called into the battle to use our strength to build the kingdom of God and to bring hope and healing into the world around us and even into our own lives, we are called to bring our 100%, the entire created being that God has given us, our skills, our experience, everything we have, our slingshot. But we are called to depend on God's 100% on what he brings, on his power, on his promises, on his presence in our life. You see, the Goliath moment does not depend at all on what I bring. But if I don't come with my 100%, then I'm as bad as the army holding back, frozen in in fear and not entering in. People, this is what humility is. Humility is confidence in who God is and a willingness to enter the battle and use the gifts and strength he's given us. It's not saying I don't have any gifts and strengths. It's saying I will bring what I have in confidence knowing that God is the one who empowers, who anoints, who calls, and who is the final victory. This is what David knew when he came to face Goliath. Goliath saw a boy coming towards him and sneered in contempt. Am I a dog that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you and cut off your head and do a lot of other things that we don't put on flannel graph. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. This is the Lord's battle. When David's defining moment came, he ran to it with courage because his heart was a heart after God's own heart. The end of the story, David ran quickly out to meet Goliath. He put one stone in the sling. This isn't the kind of slingshot. This is the whip it around and let go part of it. And Brian and Steve actually encouraged me to bring one and kind of do some stones, but my wisdom won the day on that one. You're welcome. Um, The stone flew, hit Goliath in the forehead. He fell over. David ran to Goliath and actually cut off Goliath's head with Goliath's own sword. David didn't take a sword into battle. And how often are the things that we are afraid of absolutely powerless in light of God's power? An ironic twist. David cut off Goliath's head with Goliath's own sword. And then he carried the head around for a lot longer than I thought necessary. (laughs) 
So how do we take this story and step back from it just a little bit to help bridge the gap from a nice Bible story to how does it apply to our lives? And to do that, I've got a diagram that's going to come up on the screen that I want to talk through with us. Because as you can tell from the story, Goliath was the main point. But Goliath didn't just kind of rise up out of nowhere with no context and just like one day there was Goliath yelling at people. He was in context. And the context that Goliath was in was the ongoing conflict with the Philistines. So from the time of the judges, long before King Saul, till the time when Israel went into exile, they had a nemesis, an arch rival, and that was the Philistines. And you'll find over and over and over again that the Philistines are coming to attack or the Israelites are going to attack them. And sometimes the Philistines win and sometimes Israel wins. And there's this ongoing conflict and challenge within, and that's where we find Goliath. But there's even a bigger context than that, and that's the fact that Israel is a nation, and that David, in his part in this story, has been anointed to be the future king. So he's got this society and culture that he was born into, and he knows the calling and purpose in his life, and the skill set and the experience that he has, he's had that brings to bear on this. So let's take this over to us, because in our large context, you and I were born into a society and a culture. For many of us, that was North America, and it has its own personality and characteristics and things about the way that it functions in our society and our culture. I believe it has a calling and a purpose as well. And we have personal calling. We have our created being, just as David did, to bring to the culture and the society that we're a part of. And like the Philistines and Israel, we have ongoing conflict and challenges in our life, don't we? Things that kind of recur, that come up over and over again, that create an impasse in our lives where we're not really sure what the way forward is and it doesn't make sense how this is ever going to be resolved. And just like those armies that stood on opposite hills, we've got these recurring challenges that rise up in our lives. And I don't know what your recurring challenge might be. It might be your marriage or the lack of a marriage or or the failure of your marriage. And I just want to say I'm sorry for when that hurts. Some of you stood on a stage much like this and you promised till death do us part before God and these witnesses and you are sticking to it and I honor you, but it's not easy and that's your Goliath. That's your ongoing challenge. For some of you, it's work. Maybe it's a boss or a coworker or just the job that you're in that that is providing provision, but it's not who you thought you were made to be and you're wondering, how long do I have to stay here? Maybe you're a student and it's, it's a teacher Or a bully who just keeps being mean. Maybe it's something completely out of your control that threatens your financial status. I don't know what your ongoing challenge or conflict is, but I know that in this world, God said we would have trouble. (laughs) And we all have trials and trouble. And that's part of the context that brings us into our defining moments. You see, that's what Goliath was. Goliath was one moment in the midst of a much bigger context that changed the trajectory for the nation of Israel. And in our defining moments, there are those places, they don't happen every day, but we are invited to respond with courage to change the trajectory of our very lives. And how do we come to our defining moment with a heart like David's that is aligned with God's so that what rises up out of us in that moment is courage. You see, I don't think that courage... I don't think that the choices that we make are just the results of an instant, just what our mind decides to do. 
You know, if you were doing the Bible study this week, you saw that the choice, the decisions that shape our soul that was written into the Bible study was fear or courage. And I want to say that I don't think feeling fear is something we need to be ashamed of. I think there's healthy fear. There are reasons to fear. Looking at Goliath would create fear, and that's okay. The question is, what are we going to do from that place? Are we going to stay frozen in our fear? Are we going to stay stuck in our unforgiveness? Are we going to stay trapped by our own anger? Are we going to stay in these things that rise up? Or are we going to move to the place of acting in accordance with God, his character, and his will, and rise up with courage? Because our choices are set long before we ever make them. Read this with me. We're going to read it a couple times. This is about our choices. Our choices are more than an action of our mind. They are the alignment and drawing of our heart coming out. Listen to that again. Our choices are more than an action of our mind. They are the alignment and drawing of our heart coming out. What is my heart already aligned with? What is the drawing of my heart? What is my heart drawn to? And that is going to come out when I have a choice to make. David lined up his heart with God. And when the entire army could only see Goliath, he saw God. And when the entire army could only see the immediate fear, he remembered what God had done in the past. And when the entire army was stuck, he ran to the battle with the gifts and strengths that God had given him, knowing that God was the one who had to win the victory. How do we line up our hearts in that way as David did? Well, the first thing is we align our heart with God even when no one is looking. God chose David based on his heart before scriptures tell us anything about who David was or what he had done. Out in the wilderness with the sheep and the goats, David came to know the living God. He was a student of God's word. If you read the Psalms, you know that David loved God's word. He loved to be in God's presence. Again in the Psalms, you see that David turns with a trusting heart to God in all the circumstances of his life. When he's in victory, he expresses trust in God. When he's being chased by the king and hunted down, he expresses trust in God. He also expresses his complaint and his lament, but after he has complained to God and said, this is what my Goliath looks like, he turns to God and says, and yet I trust you. I will hope in you. I will believe in you. David worships God when nobody is looking. Again in the Psalms, when he's betrayed by his own son, even in the midst of his horrendous sin, he knows that God is a safe place to turn to with trust and worship and gratitude for how God has worked in his life. And so you and I align our hearts with God even when no one is looking. It's not about our appearance. It's not about looking Christian on the outside. It's not about what we do to show people how holy we are. It's about how our heart is being aligned with God. And we choose, like David, to rehearse what God has done in the past, to remember where God has met us, where he has sweetly spoken his truth to us, where he has come through for us when it didn't make any sense, where he has provided financially and we still can't tell how that penciled out, where he has healed a relationship or a physical illness. God is moving in our lives. He has moved in our lives. And if we want to move forward with courage, we have to look back with faith and recognize that the God who helped him 
kill the lion and the bear, we'll rescue him from Goliath and he will rescue us. And we are invited to run to the battle with the strengths God has given us. We bring our 100% knowing that victory, healing, peace, wholeness does not depend on our 100%. But we bring it to God to use as he sees fit, trusting that his 100% is what will win the day. Are you stuck? Are you somewhere in that ongoing conflict? Are you in the valley of crisis with Goliath roaring at you? And in that place, do you feel like the army of Israel, so focused on the fear that you just can't get your eyes onto God? Do you feel like Saul, so focused on the realistic reality of the situation that you're in, that you can't see the hope of a future for a God for whom nothing is impossible? Are you like Eliab? Have the circumstances in your life kind of pushed your self-defense button? And has a wall risen up? And are you responding to people by belittling and trying to put them down so that you feel better about yourself and your decisions? Because you've been too scared to recognize that God can move in this situation? If you feel like you don't have what it takes to face your Goliath moment... You're right, and you're wrong, because Jesus is our champion, and he's already won the victory, and nothing is impossible for him, nothing, not even this impasse that you're in. I want to end with where we began, from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest, that is Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need.